Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Did you know that businesses founded by women deliver higher revenue, more than two times as much per dollar invested, than those founded by men? Did you know that closing the gender equity gap would lead to a $3.1 trillion increase in GDP? There are a lot of economic reasons to support gender equity, but what exactly does that mean? And how can leaders go about creating change so that we can all reap the benefits of elevating women? I'm your host, Amber Bucher, and today we'll answer these questions and more with two special guests in this episode of Breaking Banks. First up, we'll hear from Heidi Patel. Heidi began her career in traditional corporate finance and did a tour in corporate VC before finding her passion in impact investing. Today, Heidi serves as the managing partner for Rethink Impact, a fund that supports women-run companies in sustainability, ed tech, digital healthcare, and economic empowerment. She also sits on the boards of portfolio companies Spring Health, OnQ, and Ketos. After we discussed investing with a gender lens, we'll get into some seriously important statistics with gender economist Katika Roy. Katika is the CEO and founder of Denver-based Pipeline, an award-winning SaaS company that leverages AI to drive economic gains through gender equity. I had the pleasure of hearing Katika speak at this year's South by Southwest, and trust me, you do not want to miss her deep research-based insights. So let's dive in. All right, we are so excited to be joined today by Katika Roy. Katika is the CEO of Pipeline and a gender economist, which is such an interesting job title that I did not know existed until I saw Katika speak at South by Southwest. It was a great talk. We're excited to have her here today. Thanks so much for joining us, Katika. Thank you for having me. So I I was very t- um, interested to learn about exactly what a gender economist does. So I, I'm sure that our audience will also be interested to hear that. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this field and, and what you do with Pipeline today? You bet. So a gender economist, for folks who may not know, is somebody who looks at the economy through the lens of gender. So for instance, Today, on the day that we are recording the podcast, is Jobs Day in the United States. Uh, the monthly, uh, the first Friday, which is the monthly report out of how many jobs um, have been added, how many people are employed or unemployed. And so, what I do on Jobs Day is actually look through all of that data through the lens of intersectional gender equity, so gender plus race, and ethnicity, and age. You know, I got into this work. Um, uh, through uh, three quick things. <laughs> and then I'll talk about what Pipeline does. Uh, one is my family's history. The second is my place in the fa- my family. And then the third is my experience in the labor force. So I won't take too long to go through this, but just a little bit of background. Um, I am the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee. Uh, my mom was actually born in 1939, the year that World War II began on the Isle of Guernsey, uh, which is one of the Channel Isles of the United Kingdom. And uh, in 1940, when when France fell to the German army, Prime Minister Churchill doubted his ability to defend the Channel Isles, so he actually evacuated them. And my mom was one of the 5,000 children that were evacuated. She was 18 months old, the youngest of um, five children, separated from her mother and four older siblings, placed into an orphanage and adopted a year later. She would actually never see her own mother again. And she emigrated to the United States for equality and opportunity. My father was a refugee uh, from Hungary. He actually escaped after the fall of the 1956 revolution with my three older sisters who were three, seven and eight at the time. And with the help of Hungarian freedom fighters, they actually walked across a minefield, crossed the border into Austria and arrived to a refugee camp. 
And less than two months into their stay in the refugee camp, President Eisenhower sent Air Force One to bring uh, 21 Hungarian refugees to the U.S. on Christmas Day, 1956. And they were on that plane. And so for me, my commitment and where Pipeline sort of the, the, the seeds, if you will, of Pipeline were really planted in the decision that President Eisenhower made that we mattered and that our family mattered and that uh, we could have an impact on this country. I am also the youngest of six kids, five girls, one boy. And I watched uh, my sisters and their families be negatively impacted by the lack of economic opportunities that my sisters had. And so, you know, many of the things that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg fought for during her career were things that I saw play out in my own family. So things like women not being able to get a business loan uh, without a male co-signer. That actually was uh, that was true until I was in middle school um, or women not being able to get a credit card. And so I, I understood how it was different for different genders um, as a little girl. And then last uh, is my own experience in the labor force. So I was a breadwinner mom. I still am a breadwinner mom, have been for 14 years. And I fought to be paid equitably twice and one. And what I could never really figure out was why my children were worth less to society simply because their mother is the breadwinner. I had done the things that society had asked me to do. I got a bachelor's degree, two master's degrees, graduated with very good grades. Um, and as a little girl was told that if I worked hard and do, did well in school, I could be anything I wanted to be. And that was not my experience in the labor force. And so I started Pipeline to use technology such as artificial intelligence and cloud computing to make the world more equitable, but also to change the narrative around equity. We often talk about equity as the right thing to do, and it is, but it's actually a massive economic opportunity. And Pipeline started with research. We did a research study across 4,000 companies in 29 countries. And what we found was that for every 10% increase in intersectional gender equity, so gender plus race and ethnicity and age, there's a one to 2% increase in revenue. And wow. that's the model, yeah. <laughs> that's the model that is based on our platform. I'm a CEO. All CEOs are held to account to maximize shareholder value. We are fiduciaries of our companies. And so closing the equity gap is not only the right thing to do, it's a really important lever for CEOs to pull to maximize shareholder value. That is a crazy statistic. And so can you say that for us again about the percent increase in equity and how that correlates to revenue? Just that little fact. I want to make sure we hear it loud yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, you bet. So what we found was that for every 10% increase in intersectional gender equity, so gender plus race and ethnicity and age, there is a one to 2% increase in revenue. Wow. That's that's an incredible statistic. And it is, you know, correlative research, but you know, you can't ignore that really powerful stuff there, Katika. And, and I did not even know that I was asking you to record on what's basically a holiday in your line of work, jobs day. So, <laughs> so apologies for intruding. That's okay. Um, really incredible background and, and history behind why you did this work. It makes sense because if you're going to start a company from the ground up, you better be passionate about it. So it <laughs> makes so much sense that um, yeah. you've experienced so many things throughout your life that led you to this work. And it's interesting that, you know, we might have some bankers who were alive at the time that um, women couldn't get a loan or a credit card without their husband's um, signature. So, so really appreciate you walking us through all of that background. Kind of fast forwarding to today, we're in such an interesting time to be having this conversation, Katika. Coming out of COVID-19, which, as I think a lot of folks have reported, really disproportionately impacted women in the workforce. Um, so can you talk a little bit today about how COVID really has added 11 years, I, I believe was the research that, that Pipeline put out, that COVID had actually added 11 years to the time to gender equity in the workplace, meaning that we won't reach gender equity 
for an additional 11 years, uh, more <laughs> than what we were on track for pre-COVID. Uh, yes. So just to give folks a sense of that, uh, we are currently uh, 268 years wow. from gender equity in the workforce. So that's like the year uh, 2290. Oh, is that uh, right now where we are? And, uh, and you know, what, what happened, uh, interestingly enough, right before the pandemic, what we saw, we actually started to see some really positive signs in the labor market. So things like in the United States, women were uh, the majority of all college educated workers in the labor force. They'd been the majority of um, a bachelor's degree and higher, but actually participating in the labor force. We saw that uh, change right before the pandemic. And uh, we were starting to see some really positive trends. And then COVID hit. And the thing about that is that all of the cracks sat right under the surface. And when when we had uh, the pandemic hit and then the associated economic fallout and the renewed calls for racial justice, all of those cracks came right to the surface. So women lost the majority of all jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, they are, you know, prior to the pandemic, they're 47% of the labor force. They lost uh, approximately, depending on the numbers that you look at, about 57.5% of all jobs. So there was a, a variance on that. Their unpaid labor increased by 153% during the pandemic. The industries that women, uh, predominantly female, were impacted by the pandemic. And then you saw uh, a lot of other things that haven't been talked about quite as much, uh, but things like uh, the majority of all school children in the United States who attend public school are free and reduced lunch. So when schools shut down, there was a real concern around children having enough to eat. And the majority of those children are in breadwinner mom, house, mom households. Uh, and so a lot of these cracks under the surface uh, that um, that existed and, you know, just basically pushed women out of the labor force, increased poverty, uh, et cetera. And we still really haven't recovered. I, I am still uh, going through the jobs numbers that were released today. But as of the last jobs report in April, uh, 872,000 women were missing from the labor force. And and we set back labor force participation <laughs> all the way to 1988 levels. Oh. And as of April, and again, I'm still doing all the numbers for today's jobs report, but as of the April jobs report, uh, we were at November 1993 levels. And while that may say, oh, well, that's just an issue of fairness, it's actually not. Um, it's, it is an issue of economic growth. So since 1970, women have added $2 trillion to the U.S. economy through their increased labor force participation. And we've actually lost uh, the majority of that progress. And so we've drained, as it stands right now, $3.1 trillion out of the U.S. economy through the setbacks that we have seen due to COVID-19. And can you help us understand how adding more women to the workforce is, is increasing that, that economic state? Is it that, that we are able to fill more jobs and then therefore be more productive? Is that the correlation? Yes, filling more jobs doesn't necessarily mean we're more productive, but those are two economic measures. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that is a great point. Thank you for the correction. Yeah, there's filling jobs and then there's how productive those workers actually are. So, uh, yes. So let me just take a step back for folks who may not. Um, I know this is mostly financial folks, so they're probably aware of this. But from a labor economics perspective, there are really three key things that we look at for how gender equity uh, positively impacts the economy or or if they're if those are down it, it negatively impacts it which is um which is education attainment uh, labor force participation and wages okay. so education attainment what we look at 
predominantly is women who are getting bachelor's degrees or higher. And that has actually been on an upward trend. So women are 57% uh, of all uh, workers who have a bachelor's degree and higher. So that's good news. Um, it does vary by state, but uh, that's on average across the United States. Then the second piece is labor force participation. And that's where we see a 10 point drop off, which is that women make up 47% of the labor force. So while they might be, might be getting education, uh, they are not participating in the labor force at the same level as men. And then the last is wages. And wages um, really are a three-legged stool. So we hear a lot about the gender pay gap, right? 83 cents on the dollar, mm -hmm. um, which is about the money coming in to women's wallets. There, the wage gap is actually a three-legged stool because the other part of that story is... Uh, is are the the um, is the money coming out of women's wallets, and that uh, manifests in two ways. One is that women are the majority of all student loan holders uh, in the United States. So we're fifty seven percent of college graduates, but we're sixty. We hold sixty seven percent of all student loans. That happens for two reasons. One is that parents are less likely to support their daughters getting financially support their daughters to get uh, to get an education versus their sons. It also speaks to the importance of uh, publicly funded education in the United States. And then the second, or excuse me, the third leg of that stool is uh, the pink tax, which is that 50% of the time women pay 7% or more for the same items. And that could be everything from shaving cream to razors to dry cleaning. Mm -hmm. What is underneath that though, is actually the gender tariff gap. And, that, and written into our tariff code is gender. It is part of the statistical calculation. So for footwear and apparel, when those tariffs are calculated, gender is actually part of it. And Sometimes men pay more, sometimes women pay more, but on average, women's tariffs, so you could have two hiking boots, for instance, um, the tariffs on those items, on women's items are higher than men. So on average, uh, women pay 15.1% and men pay 11.9%. So not only do we have more, uh, less money coming into women's wallets, we have more money coming out. And that's a real issue. If you look at what's happening in the jobs market specifically around labor force participation, I mentioned the 872,000 women who are missing from the labor force since the beginning of the pandemic. But here's the thing. We currently have in the United States 5.53 million jobs that we can't fill. Wow. And if, and if we can bring more women back into the labor force, even that 872,000, we could begin to fill those jobs. And if we fill those jobs, we begin to see uh, more evening out of, you know, we've obviously seen a pretty rocky uh, week in the stock market. We've uh, seen the Fed um, increase the increase rates by a substantial amount, you know, historically, inflation, et cetera. Gender equity is a really important lever for us to use. So getting more women into the labor force, um, closing the gender pay gap, et cetera, that will help even out some of this volatility. That is incredibly nuanced and layered. And, you know, I think a lot of people have probably heard of the pink tax, but to, yeah. to really get a better understanding of how deep this goes is um, pretty eye-opening, Katika. So I, I definitely want to get into the question of how we go about bringing those women into the labor force. But before yep. we leave this sort of um, lay of the land territory that we're in today, I wanted to touch on something else that you talked about from the stage at South by, which was how this is really it's it's more than just the women who are eligible to work today, but this is really a generational issue that has ripple effects both to the next generation, youth, and also um, potential opportunities for savings when we look at closing the gender equity gap um, for older Americans and what that means for Social Security. So can you just talk a little bit about, you know, kind of those ripple effects on both sides of the generational uh, line? 
Yeah. So uh, I believe the first part you're talking about is breadwinner moms. And the second part is the percentage of women that live in poverty, as well as shoring up social security. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Um, So on the, on the front end of that, and we're, you know, obviously recording this as we're heading into mother's day uh, is that we in the United States Uh, women are the breadwinners in 40% of U.S. households with children under the age of 18. We have 16 million breadwinner moms in the United States, and they support 28 million children. So we have this working mom myth. Well, and uh, I should say paid working mom myth because all moms work, not all moms get paid. But if you're participating in the paid labor force, we have this myth around mothers, a few of them. One is that this myth of secondary income, that mom's earnings are just for purses and shoes. Huh. That's one. And the second is uh, that women are less committed to their jobs because they're mothers. Mm-hmm. And on the first piece, uh, we know that's not true. We know that 71% of all households with children under the age of 18, and then 40, you know, women contribute, mothers contribute to the economic well being, and 40% of them, moms are the primary or sole breadwinner. And so um, that, that's the first myth, and I'll dive a little bit into that. And then the second is around women as being less committed to their jobs uh, than, uh, than other the mothers, than, uh, than other workers. And actually, what the data shows is that moms are the most productive employees over the course of their career. So if employers want to invest in a cohort of their population, working moms are it because the productivity, they have the highest productivity. On the front end of that around breadwinner moms, Pipeline uh, did research. And what we found was that breadwinner moms uh, have the largest gender pay gap of any cohort of women in the workforce. It's 66 cents on the dollar. And when you start to cut that by gender and race and ethnicity, Black breadwinner moms have the largest gender pay gap of any women in the U.S. labor force, which is 44 cents on the dollar. And and they support the majority of Black children and have for almost 40 years. And so when and what we know is that the economic standing of parents directly impacts the future economic standing of their children. And so we are not only leaving women behind, we're leaving 40% of our future labor force behind. So investing in working moms is not only an investment in our existing current labor force, it's actually an investment in 40% of our future labor force. So that's the front end of the question. The back end of the question is, uh, on average, these numbers got a little bit better, but more recently, but on average, twice as many women live in poverty than uh, over 65, ages 65 and older live in poverty than, than, than men. And, uh, and so one of the things that I have talked about is that we can choose how we pay for people. We cannot choose whether or not we pay for them. And when people live in poverty, anyone who pays taxes in America and, you know, not just income taxes, but mostly income taxes, but other taxes, we pay for that, right? Right. Like if you are an American taxpayer, you are subsidizing the gender pay gap. That's just the way it is until it closes because those folks are more likely to be on social welfare programs. So we can invest in actually not not having that happen. Uh, Some of that is solving equity in the workforce, solving for women who take breaks, et cetera, solving for the gender pay gap. But the other piece of that is shoring up social security. And what we know is that most women actually sit under that social security uh, cap, you know, the cap that's uh, income cap. Uh, And so if we were to close the gender pay gap in the United States, not only would we add $512 billion to the US economy, we would actually close the social security savings gap by a third which is about um, 
$4.7 trillion roughly, depending on the time at which you're looking at that. But that shores up Social Security for everyone. That's incredible. I So, so many huge numbers co- floating around in this conversation. I think that you have more than convinced, I would hope, uh, everyone around you that, that this is something that needs to be fixed. Again, like, like you said, not because it's the right thing to do, but because we are paying a yeah. lot of money by not fixing this problem. Um, and, you know, I think that everyone who's hiring right now definitely wants to tap into that pool of the most productive workers that they could. So- yeah. So when we when we turn the conversation to looking at um, how we go about fixing this, I, I'm I'm sure that Pipeline has a lot of great ways to help people do that. But I want to talk first about some of the ineffective solutions that you've seen yeah. leaders deploying to try to to try to bridge this gap. The eight billion dollars that is spent on implicit bias training or unconscious bias training every year. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a, that sounds pretty. Uh, it sounds like a big another big number that we should talk about. Yeah. yeah. So so we're we're spending. It sounds like we're spending a lot of money on things that are just not having the end results that that will actually close the gap, right? Yeah, we call it check checkbox diversity. Check okay. check check. I did the unconscious bias training. I did the implicit bias training. I'm done. Well intended. No results. So what the research shows is, uh, we just look at unconscious bias training, implicit bias training, really well intended. And what the data shows is either it doesn't have any impact on closing equity gaps at companies, or it can actually make equity gaps worse. And the reason is, that unconscious bias training, implicit bias training, actually reinforces stereotypes Mm -hmm. around uh, different cohorts, different demographics of people in the labor force. So what we need to do is to move from a system that is inequitable by default, which we saw that front and center in the pandemic. It's why one of the reasons why women uh, bore the brunt of the economic fallout from the pandemic. But also we need to shift to a system that is equitable by design. And I can talk a little bit more about that. If you are a people manager, you manage people in a company and you are committed to equity, right now you have to choose to be equitable, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, If, and that that then speaks to, it's inequitable by design, right? If I have to choose to be equitable, then the default is inequity. Right. What we need to do is to flip that so that the system itself is equitable by design. So, So that as a people manager, by default or by design, I'm making decisions that are equitable. And if I'm choosing not to follow those decisions, I'm choosing to be inequitable. That's a very different decision-making model than what we have put forward with most of our inclusion programs. I'll give you an example of how this was deployed uh, in a separate issue, not around equity. So a few years back, There was a lot of talk around low savings rates, 401k savings rates. And so what companies did was to auto-enroll new employees in the 401k savings plans. And what happened? (laughs) The rates went up. Right. And it's a behavioral economics like model, which is that it is harder to unenroll than to enroll. So if we flip the system, which is the model at Pipeline, any company that has Pipeline is equitable by design because we run all people decisions through our system to make sure that they are equitable. And if they aren't, we actually make a recommendation to make them equitable before the decision is made. Now we're actually accelerating time toward equity. And just to give you one statistic from our Uh, our customers. On average, our customers increase equity 
by 67% in the first three months on the platform. And that really is a testament to shifting from a system that is inequitable by default to one that is equitable by design. That's incredible. So when you say, you said that folks are running people decisions through the pipeline system, what kinds of decisions? Is is it just job offers? Are there other pieces of the kind of life cycle that you guys are helping monitor? Yeah, it's interesting that you say job offers. Yes. Um, so one of the things that we talk about, yeah, I will, I will answer your question. I just want to give a little bit of a preface, which is that uh, there has been a lot of focus on hiring for diversity. You can hire for diversity, but you must build for inclusion. That's a lot tougher. So what Pipeline focuses on is that building for inclusion. There are five key uh, categories or buckets of decision, people decisions that companies make uh, across their employees. Internal hiring, which is lateral mobility in companies, pay, performance, potential, and promotion. So when you are, for instance, you posting a job requisition, um, what Pipeline will do is actually provide you a slate of internal candidates that can fill that position. And the reason why, if we just talk about hiring and we can also talk about pay, but the reason why we focus on internal hiring or mobility is because the best way to uh, to uh, attract diverse or underrepresented or underestimated folks is to ensure that your existing diverse or underrepresented folks are actually have equity of opportunity in your company, not only in the jobs that they have right now, but across their employee life cycle. So that's why we focus on inter- internal mobility. The other piece that we've found uh, there, there's many things we found, but one of the things, one of the other pieces is that you can't close the gender pay gap by starting with pay. And the reason is that pay is the symptom. It's not the disease. So in other words, pay is this quantitative value that we place on our employees. But um, the actual value that we place on our employees happens before that in performance and potential. Those actually become inputs to pay. And so when Pipeline works with a company that wants to close their gender pay gap, we actually focus on performance, potential, and then we make pay recommendations. Okay. That's really interesting. I was just talking to a venture capitalist that does impact investing through a gender lens. And she was talking about how having women in the company to begin with is so vital because when a new recruit is looking at your website, they want to join a company that has people in it, and particularly in leadership, that look like them. Um, so building, instead of just thinking about hiring for diversity, um, I love that you guys are, are taking that angle on it. Yeah, thank you. So I want to talk to you about um, skilling. This is this has been a big issue, particularly in our sector and financial services, where automation is really growing at a at a rapid clip, and we're starting to think about what that means in terms of impacting jobs. Um, similarly, you know, in in banking in particular, there are a lot of women who work in banking, but they work in roles that are lower down the chain in terms of seniority and and um, so they are more at risk to be automated out of their job in our industry. So skilling is something that we talk about a lot, upskilling, reskilling to make sure that we can you know, move people around and, and still keep them employed. You talked at South by Southwest a little bit about equitable skilling. So can you tell us what that is and how that might be slightly different than how we think about skilling generally? So what, yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about skilling, this happens in public policy as well, there's an assumption that those initiatives are gender neutral. They aren't. They're gender ignorant. I'm finding that nothing is actually gender neutral, Katika. <laughs> this is true. There's been, there are very few things in this world that are gender neutral. And, 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 and we can dive into that. So there are, if we kind of back up, like, why does skilling matter now? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about fourth industrial revolution. I'll talk about that. Um, but there's actually three uh, key variables around equitable skilling. 
The first is what happened during the pandemic, right? Which is that we saw digital adoption catapult forward by five years. And what that means essentially is that the jobs that were available uh, at the beginning of the pandemic may not some of them didn't exist when folks started to go back to work, right? Because they were automated, they changed, et cetera, when you catapult that far forward. That was one. The second, which hasn't been talked about quite as much, which is that there are declining birth rates. So we uh, had in 2020, the slowest population growth in the United States that we had in nine decades. And that is... (laughs) an issue from an economic perspective because most of our systems are based, our economic systems are based on growing population, right? Social security is a perfect example of that. And then the third variable is this she session, which is what happened during the pandemic. And if you just look at that, we talked about it a little bit earlier in the podcast, which is that the U.S. is now at November 1993 levels. This is as of the April jobs report um, in terms of uh, women's labor force participation. So you've got a shrinking number of people who are participating in the labor force. We obviously currently have 5.53 million jobs that we can't fill and in the um, right now in the United States. And so what we need to do is ensure equitable skilling. There are two pieces of that, and I'll I'll give you some examples, but the one piece is ensuring first (laughs) that there's equity of opportunity in your company, right? So I talked about hiring, pipelines, hiring module. There's also our pay module. We have a potential module, which ensures that uh, there's equitable access to development. Uh, So in terms of the future leaders of companies, That really matters in terms of uh, recruiting and skilling people into jobs. That's the first piece. Mm -hmm. The second piece is ensuring that women, uh, and particularly women of color, have access, equitable access to skilling opportunities, which we have historically seen has not been true. They either aren't in the industries that are tapped. Like there's a lot of talk around skill adjacency, right? So um, if you're, if you're, um, what this, this is not a, the best example, but it's one example, which is for instance, if you are um, a wait staff in a busy restaurant, um, a skill adjacency is being a customer service rep. Um, you know, there's a skill adjacency. So okay. there is a mismatch in terms of skill adjacency, but also the intentionality in terms of ensuring that women and women of color in particular have equitable access to skilling. And that has been a real issue. I'll give you one public policy example. So President Biden has, for the Build Back Better plan, there are three key tenets, which was, which are the American Rescue Plan, the American Jobs Plan, and the American Families Plan. Obviously, American Rescue Plan was passed. Um, a, a version of the American Jobs Plan was, was passed as the infrastructure bill, and nothing has been done yet on the American Families Plan. That infrastructure piece, that infrastructure bill that was passed, was slated, is slated to uh, create 15 million jobs over 10 years. Here, and 100% of those jobs require skilling. Hmm. Wow. Here's the issue. If we don't focus on equitable skilling, women are slated to only gain about 23% of those jobs, and yet they lost about 54.5% of the jobs, um, excuse me, 57.5% of the jobs during the pandemic. So you have this 34 point gap between women impacted by the pandemic and equitable access to these 15 million jobs that are created. And the way that we create that equitable access is through skilling. And another piece that's also very interesting is that those jobs are higher paid. So even if we didn't close the gender pay gap in those occupations, women would actually earn 1.7 times more 
than the jobs that are created in the American Families Plan. Wow. I mean, the numbers, I just can't get over the numbers. You you have so much research. It's it's incredible. Of course, that's that's what you do. So so it makes sense. But I so let's I, I think the numbers are incredibly compelling. But in case you are not uh, compelled by these amazing, incredible numbers, what are some of the big shifts that are happening that are coming up? variables, macros, right, that are really making now the time to act on this issue? Well, uh, you know, the one is that we have 5.53 million jobs that we can't fill in the United States. Uh, That should be a concern to anyone who is trying to hire and retain talent because we've heard about the great resignation. But that's certainly a, a concern right now and should be from a labor economics concern uh, for any CEO. The second is that as American taxpayers, like we pay for the gender pay gap and there's much better ways to use those public investments than to offset and then to basically subsidize, if you will, um, companies who are not paying folks equitably. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the last is that we uh, could add $3.1 trillion to the U.S. economy through closing the gender pay gap. And that's mostly through increased labor force participation and closing the gender pay gap, as well as changing the mix of occupations that women work in, the infrastructure bill being one example of that. And so that is good for everyone. And so there are three, those are three of the many reasons that we should want to invest right now. I think there is a a fallacy or a a myth, if you will, that we can choose whether or not we pay for people. We cannot. We can only choose how we pay for them. And making the investment in creating a more equitable society in the United States makes the uh, economy better for everybody. Awesome. Well, you've won me over. So if for all of those <laughs> listening out there who want to to build their companies more equitably, where can they find you guys at Pipeline, Katika? So they can find us at pipelineequity2ease.com. And you can just uh, uh, click on the um, get in touch button and, and connect with us there. Awesome. Well, this has been so enlightening, scary enlightening. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Katika. We appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet. But we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta, and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. All right. I am so excited to be joined by Heidi Patel. Heidi, how are you doing today? I am great. Great to be here with you, Amber. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, your work at Rethink has been really in the news quite a lot lately, the last couple of years since you raised um, the last round right before the last fund right before COVID. You guys are growing like wildfire. So I'm really excited to 
tap into your knowledge of the space um, and talk more about your work at Rethink. But first, I'd love to kind of go back to the beginning, um, take you all the way back in the Wayback Machine, if you would, because your background is something that I think would be so interesting to our audience here at Breaking Banks. It's my understanding that you jumped from college straight into the world of corporate finance, um, working on Wall Street. And so I'm very curious about how that experience may have given you insights or shaped your perspective uh, for the work that you do today with impact investing. Sure, absolutely. So that's right. I left I left college. I was a you know California native. I went back east for college. I had never heard of investment banking or corporate finance. I came from a family of civil servants and lawyers or both. And I knew I didn't want to go to law school. So business seemed like the next best thing. So I went into that. And what I found was I loved numbers. I loved deals. But I also happened to land in this really interesting group. Uh, which was the media and telecom group. And at that time, both of those industries were really being reformed, reshaped and transformed by technology. And so I got to work on a lot of you know, IPOs and M&A transactions that were on sort of the bleeding edge of what was coming next. And I just, I got hooked on that, the deal process, and then really looking kind of you know, three, five, seven years down the road. And while it was really intellectually interesting, and I had the pleasure of working with some really great people along the way and didn't mind the long hours because I was learning so much and I just loved numbers, um, I looked around and I didn't see a lot of female role models. And I also felt as I looked around that I didn't necessarily share a lot of personal values with the folks with whom I was working. And so I, I was looking for more um, and when looking to build relationships with entrepreneurs and just have more alignment with my personal values and the work I was doing day to day. So that took me into that next chapter, which was starting a corporate venture capital group um, with just two other people at Time Warner. That is a really amazing opportunity. And I think, I mean, tell us about the time in which you were you were taking on this opportunity with Time Warner. What was the company going through? Um, and, and what kind of experience was that like to be starting a new venture um, in such a large corporation? Yeah, it was a crazy time. It was right around 2000. So I think about a month after I joined Time Warner, um, the merger was announced with AOL. So I was there during that very tumultuous time, uh, but it was the first time I ever worked for a woman. She was 29. She was young, brilliant, high energy. She was exactly the type of role model that I had been looking for when I was leaving banking. And so she and I and one other associate, he was also sub 30, um, we were put in charge of putting $500 million to work on different technologies that were relevant to one of the business units. It could be our magazine business, papers, cable, movies, music, any of those business units and kind of where they were going five to seven years down the road. That's a great opportunity at such an exciting time when I think about the early 2000s and tech and media. I mean, things were really just starting to explode. Um, it, they were. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a very interesting opportunity. Um, so from, from Time Warner, you know, you spent some time there. Is that where the, the bug for impact investing bit you or was that even a thing at the time? It was not a thing at the time. I think that is probably where the gender lens started to get into my brain a bit. Um, and what was really interesting is that we, you know, we were going through this merger being acquired by AOL and they, there was an AOL investments group. And our little, you know, fledgling Time Warner group was folded in. And in, during that process, my mentor and role model uh, was pushed out. So again, this kind of interesting, you know, dynamics from what happens to incredible women, even when they're smart and successful, when there are power dynamics at play. And so I moved down to DC and joined that group of, of great people. But I remember one day it was election day and I was the only, and we were, you know, living in our nation's capital and I was the only person in my group that voted that day. Oh, wow. That's yeah. kind of shocking. <laughs> yeah. And it's not to criticize people. We were all really busy. Um, and maybe, and I, I don't remember what the election was or what, you know, but it was, it was shocking to me that the work we were doing was so disconnected from the community around us. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, my, my dad was in the armed forces. He was a city attorney. My mom worked on water policy in Southern California. So they both used their legal careers to address massive social issues. And at that point, I just thought, you know, I should be using my business, my finance skills for social good as well to give back to a community I care about. And so for me, that meant a career reimagining and meant going back to business school, moving back to California to try a new path. That's really interesting that you come from that background and, and, and you were constantly kind of being pulled back into this idea of connecting with the community that it's around you and, and supporting initiatives that align with your personal values and beliefs. Um, and that's something that I think banks right now, fintechs too, are really grappling with. Banks in particular are looking for ways that they can expand this community mindset. Banks are traditionally very geographically focused. And so yeah. being especially a community bank, um, you know, being embedded in the community, knowing what's going on is, is always super important for them. And now we have this new crop of fintechs that are really focused on affinity groups and digital communities and, and communities based on something other than geography. So I'm sure that, um, you know, your your lens and, and be having that call to to really connect with community and support support really new initiatives, new businesses, new opportunities that have the ability to impact those communities is something that probably speaks volumes to, to our audience. I want to go back to some of the, the the terms that we're tossing around, impact investing and impact investing with a gender lens. Can you tell us what those things mean? Because I think when most people think about some of the goals that you had in, in making an impact and connecting, people's minds might automatically go to philanthropy or something right. like that. Um, so, so how did you come at this in a way that still keeps it, at, you know, in the business realm and something that is producing? It's a great question. And, and you're right. This term impact investing is still actually very new. It was only coined in 2008, which was, you know, still many years after <laughs> I had decided to like devote my you know, career to this ambiguous idea. And, you know, what I knew was I was a libertarian. I did not believe in big government at the time. I was really passionate about, you know what, there's so much blood, sweat and tears that go into startups. There's incredible power with technology. I was seeing it transform these industries. Why not use all those tools for good? And why not use them to bring communities along with them and help them share in this you know, movement that technology and venture capital and all of that were helping to create. And so when I joined the team at Pacific Community Ventures, that was the founding ethos that our founder and CEO, Penelope Douglas, again, another incredible female role model and leader that I worked under, that was what she was bringing. She's, she saw, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, that venture capital was great, but was creating an enormous income divide in the Bay Area. And so she partnered with leaders in the venture capital community at that point um, to help bring all of those tools and resources to local businesses that were providing high quality jobs in low income neighborhoods. And when I saw the power of a high quality job and its ability to transform the trajectory of a family, I just knew that that was the work, that was what I wanted to lean in on. And so it's not philanthropy. It's this idea that, you know, philanthropy, you write a check, it's out the door, you never see it again. What I love about business is that $1 can turn into $10, turn into $100, then it can be recycled back to you in the form of financial returns and profit and then be invested again. So it creates this positive, virtuous cycle that I just found so alluring and so energizing. And I wanted to be part of that movement. And that's really what impact investing is all about. It's using investment capital and business to create positive social good. It's not corporate social responsibility. It's this intention of creating positive social and environmental good through business, through innovation, through investment. I love your example uh, about you know investing in in a you know a family or something like that. I think that the idea of corporate responsibility and ESG, while those are not impact investing, that's not what it's about. Those are at least ideas that I think are translating to the financial services landscape today. 
I think that there are a lot of amazing companies doing good work in economic empowerment, which is one of the the sort of areas that Rethink invests in. Is that right? Can you Absolutely. talk a little bit about what you guys focus on? Sure. So within economic empowerment, that's that's a catch-all for really talking about um, financial services for the 99%. It's talking about tools and software that help small businesses thrive and help people move up the economic ladder. So it might be future of work. It might be enabling more ways for more communities to fully participate in the job market in our modern economy. It might be through affinity financial services that are helping people that don't feel either are shut out, left behind, or just don't feel welcome or at home in traditional financial services context. And that's hundreds of millions of people around the world. So it's a very big market. And so it's a catch-all, but I think the core value is the same. How do we help people and families and communities more fully participate in our economy and move up? And when they move up, for from a bank's perspective or a fintech's perspective, perhaps you have essentially built up your own client base, right? 100% more clients, saving more, buying more financial products, investing more. It's this, again, it's this kind of positive virtual cycle that our economy is built on. It should just be more inclusive. I love that. So one of the other special things about Rethink, in addition to some of the areas that you invest in, is your lens of gender investing. And this is another area that, you know, it's not, from my perspective, not not to put words in your mouth, but from my perspective, gender investing is not about investing in women because it's the right thing to do, right? There's something- It's good business. It's good business. And if you're not leaning in on hiring women, writing checks to women, allocating capital to women, you are full stop leaving money on the table. I mean, I think there's, you know, countless research reports that have come out in the last, you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months, multiple years that show a number of things. One, you know, women are starting businesses at twice the rate of men. 40% of all tech businesses today are run by women. When women get money as CEOs, they tend to grow revenues faster. They do more with the money they raise. They're more profitable. They're much more likely to build diverse teams around them. And that all of the research shows to diversity of thought, of perspective, of background, building stronger businesses. Yet there remains this incredibly huge capital gap for women, particularly within tech and venture. And so that's what Rethink Impact is trying to address. Is there a pipeline problem? There is not a pipeline problem. There's not a pipeline problem. When we started venture, you know, know, our venture capital firm, Rethink Impact, and we invest in software businesses that we, you know, hope are going to be massive billion or multi-billion dollar businesses with women at the helm. Six years ago, the idea was we want to back teams that have at least one woman in the C-suite. So we were looking for gender diverse leadership teams. We started sourcing five, six, seven hundred companies every year. And of those, given our size, we were, you know, we were small as a team, but we were the largest in the country doing what we do, investing venture capital in gender diverse impact teams. Um, We were seeing tons of women. We can only invest in four or five new companies a year. So we thought, well, shoot, (laughs) let's raise the game, right? Let's raise the bar. And so now with our fund too, um, 180 million, um, which is a newer fund, we closed it a couple of years ago, as you mentioned, we invest exclusively in female CEOs and I can unpack why we do that. And even with that refined focus, we're seeing deal flow like crazy. It has, if anything, it has grown hundreds of deals a year and we can only invest in four or five. Um, so there just needs to be a whole lot more of us out there. Yeah, it's interesting because I think in the financial services sector, we there's a perception that there's a pipeline problem for diverse, but particularly female talent. And when you actually look at the numbers, kind of like what you were just saying, when you actually look at the numbers, actually there are plenty of women in banking. The issue is that so few of them make it to those higher levels of leadership. That's Can right. you talk a little bit about why in Fund2 you focus specifically on women CEOs? Yeah. So. I can share some of the stats with you. So today, 
we are seeing a slight improvement in the percentage of dollars within venture capital broadly flowing to teams that have at least one female founder on the founding team, right? So I think that number now is 15 cents on every dollar. Lower than it should be, but not horrifying, right? The percentage of dollars going to female CEOs is 2%. And that is a number that has not budged in over 20 years. And in fact, it's a number that we predicted would go down with COVID and it did. Mm. And that number is the horrifying glaring number that just is mind blowing given all the data out there about this the incredible job that women do when they get that backing. Um, so that's our focus. And, and the reason it's so important is that that is the seat of power, right? The CEO has the board seat. The CEO dictates culture. The CEO builds team. The CEO has the vast majority of the economics in the business. So when that company does well, that is the seat that inherits the power and the wealth that then gets recycled into the next startup or into the next board. And so when you focus on the female CEO seat as your lever point for power, it can create incredible ripple effects. That's really exciting that you're able to have impact beyond those ripple effects, beyond just that initial CEO that you're focusing on. Kind of thinking, riffing on that idea, I'm curious of all the wonderful women that you've worked with that we've talked about here today, I'm curious if there are lessons that you've learned along the way about what leaders can do to empower women and get them into these leadership roles quicker. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it depends upon whether you're talking about a startup or a, um, a really mature company. And I would say what we see in the startup world is that if you can get diversity on your team and the first four, five or six employees, you will have a diverse team throughout. If you wait until you're 20 employees in, that ship has sailed. And what we've learned is, so for one of our companies, Acclima, had a chief scientist, has a female CEO and a chief scientist that's a woman. Now their engineering and science team is 50% women, right? So there is, a, there is you know, the labor market, there is a talent war out there. Everyone's going on websites for companies where they're thinking about working and they're looking at the team and the makeup of the team and LinkedIn and they're thinking, is this a place I can go where I can have power, where I can move up, where I'll, I will be respected, where I will be listened to and heard? And if you're looking at a team that looks nothing like you and you have a choice, you're going to go to the place where you think you're going to have the most impact and have the most responsibility and, the, and be the most empowered. And so I think more and more starting early is really key to moving the needle. That's really helpful for those startups out there being really intentional in those early days, like everything you do in those early days is just so critical. Um, so when we when we first talking about your career, your early career, you mentioned something that I want to go back to, which is, I think you said it a couple of different times, this skill set that you have for thinking five to seven years into the future and how important that's been to kind of get you where you are today and inform your work today. So what strategies or ideas can you give us? How do you do that? How do you approach kind of thinking that long-term? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes down to just my own mindset around listening, optimism and learning, right? And so I think to be a venture capitalist, you have to be an optimist. You have to be able to think about what could this be and play it out. You have to be, you know, in the Myers-Briggs, you need to be probably a very strong N and understand network connections. Right. It's kind of like playing chess. If you make this move, what happens next? And then what could happen next? And enjoy that sort of intellectual process. Uh, most venture capitalists I know, uh, including myself, love to learn, love to read. We're constantly taking in all sorts of data and media and journalism and stories and trying to understand what's happening in these spaces and just this, this innate desire to learn about new things. And then it's listening. Right. If you are in an echo chamber and you're not branching out and, and pushing your network out, you'll you will only see what's right around the corner. You will never see the thing that's really coming five, seven years down the road. And so it's why I teach. It's why I get you know, I get to get in front of, you know, these new business school students every year. Now I've taught hundreds of them over the eight years. 
And, you know, they're 20 years younger than I am. So like listening to them, learning with them, exploring this concept of entrepreneurship technology and investing with them and hearing their ideas and what they're reacting to. And that's doing our own research on big problems and trying to unpack what's underneath these problems and what could these solutions look like? I mean, that those are the different pieces. It's a lot about input, learning, optimism, and listening. I love those three. That's a great, great top three um, to recap. And, and this idea that you have so much exposure to new people and new ideas through your work, I think is really exciting. So to wrap up and, and take us home here, I'm curious if there are any, what is an intellectual rabbit hole that you've kind of fallen down lately or something that you you can't stop thinking about or researching lately? <laughs> There's a lot <laughs> along the learning and listening thing. There's, there's a lot. I mean, I think we've been spending a lot of time thinking through a couple of big themes. Like what does the future of work look like when it is flexible, when it embraces it, you know, embraces people at different parts of their journey. And what are the tech and productivity? productivity tools that will enable that will, that will enable work to look different beyond gig working. Um, so that's one, I think two is our food system. Mm. How do we think about choices that are being made all along the value chain, the supply chain, whether it's big companies, startups, consumers around food, including the growers, and what are different technologies that we could use to green that entire system? So we've made a number of investments, including Full Harvest and others in that theme, trying to understand food and its connectivity to, to human health and, and broader uh, planetary health. That is super exciting. Well, clearly big ideas, big things coming out of Rethink Impact. So Heidi, how can people reach you? You can follow me on Twitter at, at Heidi Patel SF, or you can learn more about our work at rethinkimpact.com. Perfect. Well, we will do it. If we haven't already, all of our listeners will be following you now. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Heidi. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much, Amber. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.